Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, Loving Your Teenager, from our audio collection titled Shepherding Young People. If you enjoy this talk, make sure to check out the rest of them at canonpress.com, as well as Douglas Wilson's Why Children Matter. As I mentioned a minute ago, we're going to be talking tonight about loving your teenager. That is not one subject in a series of many. When you spend time loving your teenager, when you learn how to love them, uh, or learn how you've loved your child all along, but when you learn how to apply that love differently as the situation changes, that provides a context for doing everything else. I want to have us look at two passages that I have at the top of the outline here, Ephesians 6.4 and Colossians 3.21, which provide us with the negative side of this or what it looks like when you're not doing it. Okay. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And admonition of the Lord. And in Colossians, it doesn't tell us what the provocation is to. It's implied, uh, I think, that uh, it's safe to say, rather, that it's what is listed in Ephesians. But fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So in the one case, provocation leads to wrath, and in the other case, provocation leads to discouragement. And in neither case is um, the attitude one of love. Now, we're going to talk about why this is necessary to think about separately when you're dealing with teenagers in a moment. But before we before we go on to that, I want to emphasize or reassert, reemphasize something. And that is, the second greatest commandment is that you love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus um, talked about this, he said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God, which covers the first table of the law. Now, if you look at the Ten Commandments, loving the Lord your God um, involves the first table of the law. Loving your neighbor as yourself involves the second table of the law. The first table of the law, you love the Lord your God with all your heart. You don't have other gods before him. You don't make a graven image and so forth. You, you remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These are Godward duties. The second table of the law, uh, you shall not steal, you shall not murder, you shall not covet, are all directed toward your neighbor. Okay, now, you, one of the things that's important to remember or keep in mind all the time is that your children are your neighbors. Your children are included in this duty of loving the Lord your God with everything you have. Now, when the, when the fellow tried to get off the hook, when Jesus said, uh, well, do this and you'll live, he said, well, who is, who is my neighbor? Trying to get away from it. Well, there's some people who are my neighbor and some people aren't my neighbor. Jesus answered that question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the point of the Good Samaritan is your neighbor is the person that God has put in front of you. Okay, the, the fellow by the side of the road is your neighbor. You've never met him before, but he's your neighbor. If he's a Samaritan, he's your neighbor. If God has placed him in your path. Well, with your children, God has placed them in your path in a, in a semi-permanent way. They, they are your neighbors in an ongoing sort of way. Consequently, you have an obligation to love your children as yourself. You have an obligation to... Um, give that love to them, and because God doesn't uh, build the universe willy-nilly, when he tells us to love someone, that someone that we have a duty to love has a need to be loved. All right? When God tells uh, wives to respect their husbands, husbands need to be respected. When the, the Bible says, husbands, love your wives, uh, wives need to be loved. Now, you know, this is particularly the case with your children. I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. This is talking about financial provision, but I believe the principle is um, broader, broader than that. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Well, it's, it's like we saw at the, at the end of Galatians last week. We're to do good to all men, especially to those who believe. All right? We're to, uh, we are to be predisposed to love our neighbor 
that is, anyone in the world, especially those who are Christians, and then within that subset, especially those who are in our family. Right? So we have a high, the highest priority in a family is a husband loving his wife. The second highest priority is the parents loving the children. The third highest priority is the family loving the other saints in the church. And the fourth priority is loving uh, the people that you happen to meet uh, day to day. So you're to do good to all men. You're to be disposed to do good to all men, but especially those who believe. And if we take this seriously, especially those of your household. I have a greater duty to provide for my household than I have to provide for people on the other side of the world. I have a, a, an immediate duty to, to meet the needs of the people in my household. That includes their spiritual needs, that includes their emotional needs, and consequently that includes their need to be loved. That includes my, that includes my duty to provide for them by loving them. Now, uh, there's one other comment about this before we go on to specifics. We oftentimes assume that God's commandments are lifted or abrogated in the home. Right? And they're, they're not. Obedience and disobedience is not the same thing as having an untidy living room. It is perfectly acceptable to have an untidy living room, and then when you see someone coming up the walk, run around like crazy and straight, straighten it up because you don't want outsiders to see it like that. That is perfectly acceptable. It is not acceptable to tolerate sin in the home and then put on a false front when people come. There, but sad to say, there are many homes where they will tolerate a tone or an attitude or comments or a biting sort of thing from parents to children that you would be horrified if you heard uh, if you heard a church. <laughs> All right? If someone said this in that tone to someone else at church, you'd be dismayed. But that's the sort of comment that goes on in the home all the time. That kind of shortness and that kind of irritation. If if you saw that in the church, you'd say, "Boy, this is one sick church." If you saw that kind of carping and sniping and and irritation and anger, you'd say, "There's a real problem here," and there would be. But the commandment to love our neighbor does not mysteriously disappear as soon as we get home and the only portion of the church that I'm dealing with are my, are my own kids or my, um, or my wife or, my, uh, or uh, your husband as the case may be. So in the home, do not tolerate practices that you would not tolerate anywhere else. Do not tolerate discourtesies that you wouldn't tolerate anywhere else. Do not tolerate um, snide comments or cutting comments that you wouldn't tolerate anywhere else. Because the commandment to love your neighbor is, is as applicable there as it is anywhere else. And if you do anything with regard to a change, it ought to be to be more courteous. It ought to be to be, it ought to be, uh, to be more deferential. It ought to involve um, more thoughtfulness because in the day-to-day -day living in the home, there are apt to be more bumps and um, rubbing people wrong and so forth. So you want to make sure that you don't let down, you don't have two moral standards, one for public consumption and one for domestic consumption. Now, if you sin in this way in the home and you make, uh, what do you do? Well, you make restitution in the home. You say, well, how do I know if I'm just being a hypocrite and putting on a smile when someone comes in or if I'm really fixing it? You're really fixing it if you make restitution in the home. If you sin against one of your kids by how you speak to them, you should apologize to them as you would anybody else in the world. Why? Because they're your neighbor, right? Because they're your brother or sister in Christ. You treat them with the dignity that is due a fellow Christian, assuming that they're Christians, which uh, with, this, with this collection of people, most of them, uh, if not all of them, are, are Christians. So you treat them with the dignity due to a fellow brother and sister in Christ, and you treat them as a neighbor. So you discharge your obligation to love them, and you do not tolerate in yourself any moral laxity by excusing it through the excuse, oh, it's my kids, they understand, right? Well, it doesn't matter if they understand, <laughs> the question, because they're not the standard. The question is, does, does God understand? Does God say, well, it's all right to be irritated in this situation, you know, after all, you're at home? or it's all right to be annoyed or angry or whatever. It's, it's just never all right. And it's never all right because they're your neighbor, and they're your brother and sister, and they 
ought to be treated a certain way. Okay, so you you must begin by recognizing your obligation to love your teenager, and by uh, I need to define love here. Love is treating them lawfully from the heart. That is what love is. Love is not having an emotional rush, because that um, comes easily for parents. Parents can go in and watch their kids when they're sleeping and be filled with tender feelings. Say, oh, isn't he sweet, you know. <laughs> well, that kind of tender feeling uh, doesn't, doesn't do anything when, uh, when you're in the middle of some kind of controversy trying to get him to uh, take his clothes to the dirty clothes hamper or get him to do this or get him to do that. All of a sudden, you're not thinking about how sweet he is, and all you're thinking about is how annoyed you are, irritated you are. And loving him is not this emotional rush. Loving him or loving her is treating them lawfully from the heart. That's what it is. If you treat them unlawfully, you're not treating them with love. If, you, if you're treating them in any way contrary to what the Bible requires, you're not loving them, even if you have this emotional uh, sentimentality toward them. Now, that sentiment is not bad. It's not wrong. It's a perfectly normal human emotion, and God built it in, and it's to be enjoyed. But I, I believe it can only be enjoyed really long term if you're treating your kids lawfully with a whole heart, if you're treating them according to what the Bible says to do. Okay, so don't water down the, the requirements of God in the home. If anything, if anything, strengthen them. Okay, if anything, strengthen them. All right, let's go on and talk about some of the obstacles that come up with regard to loving teenagers, some of the pitfalls, some of the temptations that are associated with uh, loving teenagers. Uh, I'm certain that I, I don't have an exhaustive list here or anything close to it, but I, I want to go through these. And uh, also, when we're when we're done, I'll turn the tape recorder off, and and we can have a question and answer session if if appropriate. The first thing: teenagers, unlike infants and young children, are not lovable. Okay, they're not nearly as cute as they were when they were two or one and a half. Little children, infants, babies, need to have uh, love and affection showered on them. They, they need to have it poured on them. And it's almost as though God has ensured that just about anybody will get a um, minimum amount by making babies cute. Right? So it's easy for babies and, and toddlers and infants to receive lots and lots of affection, even from non-Christians, because Jesus points out that non-Christians um, love the he, the way he puts it is non-Christians love those who love them. Right? That, that's even a natural man can do that. Natural men can love the lovable. Right? So non-Christians can go to a baby shower and say, "Oh, isn't the baby cute?" It, it doesn't matter if um, if uh, if you're with a crowd of Christians or not there's going to be a natural warmth or a tenderness toward little ones, okay? Teenagers don't have that same advantage, right? It's not different kids lose it at different, um, <laughs> at different ages, but they can, be, uh, they can be awkward, they can be gangly, they can be clumsy, they can be uh, irresponsible, they can do all sorts of things that don't endear you to them in the flesh. All right? Now when they're when they're little, you can love them in the flesh. And they and and in a non-Christian home, a child could grow up uh, with a certain minimum of emotional security because of the, that kind of affection that was poured on them when they were young, when when they naturally attracted it. Teenagers don't necessarily naturally attract that. And consequently, in many homes, they don't get it, right? Uh, and they don't get it because the parents are loving their children not by the grace of God, but are loving their children in the flesh, right? They're just they're loving their children the way non-Christians would. If um, if the child's lovable, then I'll respond with love. If the child is getting on my nerves, then I will respond uh, by keeping my distance. Now, even if you're not losing your cool, even if you're not getting irritated or angry, all you have to do is keep your distance, and you're doing damage, because uh, the the teenagers 
teenagers need to be loved and need to have that affection shown to them, need to have that contact with you, and they need it as much as the little ones do. They just don't look like they do, and there's nothing natural about them that will naturally attract it. Okay? Um, mothers will have a hard time, for example. It's one thing to rally around a baby who's so cute, and it's another thing to look up at your teenage son who's a foot taller than you and think how much he needs to be loved by you. Right? There's nothing natural uh, that shouts that at you. So what you have to do is think about it and then act according to what you know is true, not act according to what you see right, on a surface level. So teenagers, unlike infants and young children, are not naturally lovable. So consequently, you have to choose to love them, that is, treat them lawfully with a whole heart, go out of your way to, um, to, to love them in this way, um, contrary to the evidence of your senses. Okay, contrary to the evidence of your senses. Okay, the next thing is a related one. Because they're bigger and they're smarter and they're quicker on their feet, they're fast with a comeback, they can make a joke out of something, you know, loving them is complex. <laughs> All right, it's not, it's not this simple thing. When, um, when you love this baby here, it just takes it. She just takes, you know, <laughs> nothing complex about it at all. <laughs> Right, it's a very simple transaction. But when you're loving a teenager, well, um, they may be moody, they may, you know, they may be keeping their distance, not because they want to keep their distance, but because they want you to overcome the distance. They, you, know, you could get yourself into all sorts of trouble by saying, well, they don't want to talk to me, I don't want to talk to them. Right? Well, it's not that simple. Right? As Husbands can tell you about their wives. Just because your wife doesn't want to talk to you doesn't mean she doesn't want to talk to you. Those are two. <laughs> those are two entirely different propositions. And uh, <laughs> and remarkably enough, the same sort of thing comes up with your kids. Now, loving them involves getting into tangles. It, it involves getting inside their head and finding out what's, what they're responding to at school and what's, uh, what's happening and, and did they have a good day or did they have a bad day. And those sorts of conversations and those sorts of talks are complex. They're complicated. So because, and, and, a, and a kid might come back and you say, no, no, I'm fine. I don't need to talk. Right? There, there, there may be barriers there. There may be things to overcome. There may be appearances you have to overlook or get around. So loving them is complex, and it's easy just to walk away. If they aren't a screaming basket case, right, as some kids are, if, if they're a screaming basket case and saying, I'm an emotional wreck and I'm going to commit suicide, and you know, then the parents will talk to them complex or not. But if you're dealing with normal teenagers in Christian homes, a lot of times they'll just put you off and they'll say, well, I'm not going to trouble my dad or I'm not going to trouble my mom or I'm not going to bring this up. And that's something you have to figure out. You have to read between the lines, and it's just complicated. It takes, it takes hard work. Um, babies are simple. Teenagers are complex. Okay? So that's the second thing. Um, half of your teenagers, uh, on the statistical average, are young women. Consequently, when they were, when they were little girls, it was easy to, uh, if you're dealing with a toddler who's a boy and a toddler who's a girl, it's easy to treat them with warmth and affection and and to dish out the same kind of warmth and affection. But many fathers, as soon as their daughters turn into young women, right, as soon as they turn into young women, a lot of fathers say, okay, I'm going to back off. I'm going to back away. Uh, I'm not going to hug her. I'm not going to uh, do anything like that. I'm not going to do anything physical. Not because he's tempted by anything sexual, but just because he thinks there's something it's not um, in keeping with uh, propriety or you know I, I'm just going to keep my distance and that's just wrong-headed okay what dads have to do is hug their daughters dads have to hug their daughters when they're walking by give them a hug when they go somewhere give them a hug they've got, uh, when they go to bed go up and pray with them and give them a hug uh, good night hug just lots of physical affection that way. And it's not, um, 
it's not sexual at all, but it is physical and it is important. And because it's physical, it's going to be a real protection for them later on. Okay, and I might as well um, say this at this point. Um, a lot of little girls, who's uh, Nancy and I have an expression that we use in our in our family for. Um, well, the, the expression is that someone's tank is low. Right? If if someone's tank is low, that means that they're starting to act in a way that is attention getting, or they they're they need they need um, some kind of affection or attention or some kind of time spent on them. Right? And when we see manifestations of that, we say their tank is low. Well, there are a lot of little girls whose tank is perpetually low. Right? They're running on fumes, and they've run on fumes for years and years and years and years. And there, uh, and one of the danger signs, this is one of the ways you can see it with little girls, is if relative strangers who are men come over to visit. If this little girl is on their lap or uh, too friendly with men that she doesn't really know when she's, when she's little, um, and you've got to, there, 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 uh, there are differences between personality types, obviously, but this is a, a, a good rule of thumb. What you need to do is say, okay, dad is going to give this one all the affection that he can, physical affection. I, remember, I still remember when I was a boy, I have um, grade school probably, early grade school, my parents went over to visit some friends of theirs, and uh, when we were driving home, I remember my dad saying to my mom about, uh, there was a little girl in that household a year or so older than I was, a year or two older. And my dad said to my mom, they're going to have trouble with her, with men, as soon as she's old enough. You know. And sure enough, that's what happened. Um, and how did he know? Well, he, she didn't know him that well, and he sat down in their house, and she was on his lap, and, just, and driving away, they're going to have trouble with her, and they did. Now, what happens is this. This little kid, um, this little kid's tank is low, and and little daughters need male affection. They've, God has built that in. He's required fathers to pour on male affection, and this little daughter doesn't get it. So her tank's low, and so she starts searching for it elsewhere. And when she's a little girl, she's a nuisance. All right, when, and she, after a while, comes to realize that she's a nuisance. That makes her more insecure, and so she's um, looking for more and more affection. Well, as soon as she uh, hits adolescence, and as soon as she becomes a young woman, all of a sudden, for the first time in her life, boys are volunteering to, to pay attention to her without her having to chase after. All of a sudden, she's not chasing after male affection, male attention anymore. All of a sudden, male attention is chasing after her. Right, well, well, oh, now I've got something to barter with. I've got something to negotiate with. And she, she doesn't have a sexual problem. She's just got, an, uh, she's just got a real problem with um, needing the affection and warmth from dad. Now, some people are more outgoing, some people, some boys and girls both, some are shy, some are outgoing. Make allowance for that kind of personality difference, or innate personality difference. But even given that personality difference, outgoing personality types can have a low tank too. That's just because they're outgoing doesn't mean that they don't need that affection. And um, so pour it on. So dads, hug your daughters. Just lots of affection. and. Uh, do that as a constant general rule, and then monitor how much you you uh, give out. In other words, be willing to up it if uh, there's any manifestation of uh, attention-getting behavior and that sort of thing. If if you think, in your opinion, that, that her tank is low, then give her more than you think she needs. Just lots uh, lots of affection. Now, um, that also involves. Um, Verbal, verbally complimenting them and that sort of thing, but we're going to get into that later on. Okay, next thing. Because teenagers are big people, they're in many cases as tall as you or taller. Or, you know, they, they they look like other people in the world. They don't look like to you a product in transition. They look like to you a product that is finished, right? In other words, you, you think when you're dealing with this person, I'm dealing with a completed person. I'm dealing with a uh, person whose name is this, and they're walking around in the world just like I am. And consequently, 
when there's a bump or a collision or a, a misunderstanding between parent and child, many times the parents take it personally. Okay? In other words, parents get their feelings hurt by the teenager and back off. All right? All right, if you're going to be that way, if I, you know, if I'm going to cook you this meal and you're not going to say thank you, yeah, well, just, oh, oh. <laughs> and, and you back off. And when you back off, you're not giving them the attention and the affection that they need. And incidentally, you're not in a position to correct the self-centeredness that you may see there either. Because you need to correct and you need to teach and you need to admonish and you need to rebuke. But you have to do it in a context of love. Right? That's, that's what gives you your audience. And if you get your feelings hurt, let's say your child sins, is ungrateful or takes advantage or whatever it is. Uh, is disobedient, doesn't get a job done, or that sort of thing, and it bothers you, and you take it personally. I work so hard, and they don't understand how I work, and all I do for them, and I sacrifice them, and they didn't even say thank you, and then you back off. All right? Now, if you back off that way, you are not disciplining them for their good. You are retreating from the situation for your own good. In other words, you're being selfish. Okay. Now, if you take the sin of your children personally, then Galatians 6.1 applies, where it says, if a brother is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one. Now, in a family, in a home, it's very unusual for a parent to let a child do this thing without at some point correcting them, right? But if they've taken the hurt, if they've taken the thing personally, when they correct the child, it's going to be with a little bit of uh, acid in the voice. There will be an edge in it. There will be a cutting aspect to it. There will be a destructive element in the discipline. If you are, if you are disciplining them for their sake, then you can do it judicially and calmly and, and kindly, and there will be no edge in your voice at all. If there's an edge in your voice, if there's a razor edge to it, if there's acid in it, then you're correcting not for their benefit, but for your own benefit. And if you're correcting for your own benefit, uh, you're just letting them have it. You're venting steam. You're not disciplining, and you're, and you're not really bringing up your, you're not really bringing up your kids. Um, if you think that something needs to be said, but you know that you're not qualified to say anything, then go in the other room and get qualified to say something. Confess your sins, and then come back out and correct. But make sure you don't con don't rebuke and don't admonish with any kind of uh, uh, with any kind of personal offense having been taken on, on your part. Um, it is, and while I'm on this, it is far easier uh, generally for mothers to take the thoughtlessness of teenagers personally than it is for fathers. You know, dad shows up at the end of the day and, you know, what's for dinner and how was the day? You know, and the teenagers got home from school at 3.30 with their bad days behind them, ready to um, dump it into the home, and so mom's been dealing with their bad days and her bad day for the last two hours, and then dad comes home, and he, he arrives at, well, by the time he gets home, there could be all sorts of tangles and hurt feelings, and, and mom has reacted to the kids, and the kids need to be taught to help her out or respect her or, you know, whatever it is they need to do, and that needs to happen, but it can't happen if mom's been out of shape. If mom's been out of shape at the thoughtlessness of, I, you know, and this, this is another optical illusion. Don't, your kids look like they're adults or almost adults. They look like um, responsible young people. In, in some of your cases, you look at them and say, you know, they could go up to the U of I and pass for a college student. And, you know, they could, they could get by. And, and so you say, they ought to know better. And, and yeah, I'm fine. They ought to know better. But you ought to know better, too. <laughs> You can't react that way. You're responsible to keep your own heart clean, and if you keep it clean, then you're then you're in a position to correct that which needs to be corrected. And um, this is something I mentioned in church on Sunday. When you feel like correcting them, you're not qualified, and when you're qualified to correct them, you don't feel like it, and that's when you must. Right? So um, when Dad's uh, sitting there reading the paper, doing whatever he's doing, and his wife comes to him and says, "You know." Um, so and so did thus and such, you know, and, and he doesn't have a personal element in it. He doesn't have an axe to grind. He just wants to read the paper, and he said, you know, oh, you know, I've got to go discipline them for this. It's something I got to do. Well, he's qualified to discipline, 
because he's not into it. Right? He's, he's qualified. He's just the person for the job. Uh, Mom, who has just come from the scene of the crime, hot, um, is, not, is not qualified at all to, to be involved in this. So what he needs to do is have her you know, take it easy, sit down, calm down. But he can't tell her to calm down and then not take action himself. He's qualified, so he's got to address it. He's got to protect her. Okay, um, the next one. Because they're much more independent, by this I mean they have uh, friends, activities, and driver's licenses. Right? They've got places to go. They'll say, oh, I'd like to go over so-and-so's and study, and there's a get-together here, and there's a get-together there. And, and a lot of times teenagers will look, just by, just by looking at their schedule, they will look like they don't need you. All right? When, um, when they were little, when they were toddlers, they, they needed you if they were going to go to the bathroom, and they needed you if they were going to get a drink, and they needed you if they were going to do this. Anything they were going to do, they needed you. And now they can drive all over the place and go all over the place, and you let them go downtown, and you, they're, they're doing all these things on their own, and they look like they don't need you. Right? And that's just simply false. That's another one of those optical illusions. It's an optical illusion. Uh, they may even buy into the optical illusion. Right? But it's important because it looks like to them that they're really independent and they're really not. What you have to do is realize that what the appearance that they present both to you and to them is not correct and they need to be loved in this way. When your daughter walks by, you need to give her a hug just for nothing. Um, whether or not it looks like she needs it. She's, um, and if you're saying, well, um, my kids want to go to this party and they want to go to that and they want to go to the other, and they're, they're not saying, can I spend some time at home? <laughs> that, that's not coming into their heads because they are not at the point where their needs that your children are not, and this is, uh, I don't know how to put this, I don't want to say that they're being dishonest with you, but your children are not telling you everything that's in their head. Okay? You can just count on that. They're not telling you everything that occurs to them. They're not telling you everything that they're afraid of. They're not telling you everything that they're worried about. They're just not telling you those things. Okay? Now, you don't need to find out about those things to minister to them. Right? You just assume that they're there. Okay? And you don't have to talk about it. Um, to minister to them in that need. You don't have to talk about the details of it because if you uh, remember correctly, the sorts of fears and insecurities that you go through when you're that age are not generally grounded in a whole lot of reality. All right, so you don't, you, lots of times you don't really have a problem to solve. What you have is an emotional response to deal with. Okay, and, and they could come home all distressed about this or about that and whatever it was doesn't really matter. What you want to do is minister to them in such a way that it deals with that problem without you finding out what it is. Okay? Um, all you need to know is that there's an infection and, and give them penicillin. <laughs> there's all sorts of things that pen, penicillin, penicillin will get. Uh, you just need to uh, make sure that they're getting regular um, massive doses of it. Um, so don't believe what they say. Don't believe how they act. Little uh, boys will act in a um, macho um, sort of way. I'm going to work on uh, seeing how far I can go in being sick or being hurt without um, without showing it. Um, you know, that's the sort of thing they're driving at. So don't expect them to break down and tell you all about it. Uh, sometimes that might happen, but that's just not uh, going to be the case. Um, a lot of times you'll see teenagers say things like this. Um, <laughs> here's a standard example. Uh, let's say you you tell them something that you know they don't know, and and they say, "I, I, I knew that." <laughs> yeah. Or I know, you know, I know. Now you could go to the carpet with them on it and say, "No, you don't." <laughs> you first. Yeah, I, I know you don't know this. And what they're doing is they're trying to they're trying to get ahead of the curve. You know. Uh, information is coming at me in a rapid sort of way. I'm growing up. My body's changing. My head is changing. Everything is changing. And people are telling me these new things, and I'm desperately trying to keep up. So I know things. You know, I, I, I know, I know, I know. Because you don't want to say, I don't know. Because 
um, well, the child wants to, the teenager wants doesn't want to sit down and say, um, "Father, you're so wise. Would you please tell me um, how the world works?" Now, I think it is important that teenagers respect their parents, and we're going to cover that in the future. But I think it is wrong-headed to expect that respect, to expect the respect to look um, the way it does in other situations. Okay, it is, um, for example, I've, I've been in situations where I've been talking with the kids, with, with my kids, at the dinner table and, and having a discussion about something or other. And let's say I'm, um, I'm debating uh, something with Becca. She's saying, well, this is not fair, or that's not fair, William. And I'm having this discussion, and I'm pointing things out. And she's discussing with me, and I know that she is arguing with me and filing all my answers away. And if she got in that same discussion with somebody else down the road, she would be on my side. Okay? Um, but so the, the respect is there. The, she's being taught. She's taking it in. Um, she's filing it away. She's using it. But oftentimes you'll see kids um, picking up information from you or teaching from you sort of almost on the sly. Um, talking with you about something and just sort of picking picking up information without having to ask you directly um, for it. And well, what's going on? Why don't they just ask? Well, because they're not mature enough to admit ignorance. Right? That that sort of thing is a mark of maturity. When you when you admit that you don't know certain things or that you've uh, failed in certain things or you're not good at certain things, that's a mark of maturity. And since teenagers are immature. It, it's not something they do very well. So they want to say, oh, I knew that. Or, or they, want to, they desperately want to find out something from you, so they'll talk with you about it um, to see what you say. And they don't say, gee, Dad, thanks for teaching me that. <laughs> that just isn't going to happen. Okay, so expect them to hide how much they don't know. Expect them and I'm not saying that this this is not something that is deliberate deception. I, I don't think uh, uh, the Christian... I'm not excusing deceptiveness or lying on the part of Christian teenagers. I don't think we ought to have different standards of morality. I don't think this is something that they are necessarily aware of. Some some may be, but many times they're just, they're just flat insecure and they don't know what makes them tick and they don't know why they respond the way they do and, and so forth. So they're uh, hiding it effectively, and they're young enough to be immature, and you should be mature enough not to be fooled by the appearance. Okay? Now, let me summarize this aspect of it. You maybe I'll, we'll probably summarize all the stuff I've covered uh, thus far, or, or most of it. Treat them as... Uh, um, I hope this will communicate. Treat them as though they were adults, and love them as though they were babies. Okay, love them like they're babies and treat them as though they're adults. Right? If you just treat them as though they were adults, uh, a coworker at the office, you're you're going to have one disaster after another. If you patronize them by just loving them like a, a little toddler, they're going to say, "Oh, you never let me do anything, and why can't you know? Why don't you treat me like a an adult?" They are in this weird situation where you have to love them like they're babies and treat them like they're an adult. Uh, uh, respect them as an individual separate person, uh, brother, sister in Christ, as a neighbor. Give them uh, that sort of respect and at the same time give them love. And the love is going contrary to your sensory experience. And, uh, and the respect is also. Because although they're big and they're maturing, they're not mature enough to warrant the kind of respect that you need to give to them. Okay, uh, okay, I want to talk about some concrete steps in, in doing this. Um, and I'm going to draw a distinction here between sons and daughters again. Turn to Ephesians 5. Okay, I want to point out uh, something about marriage here. In verse 22 it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, 
just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And then verse 33, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Um, I don't know that there's anything that I care more about with regard to my kids growing up than who they marry. Okay, I, I can't think of a single thing that I care more about. And many other things that other parents care about um, would be, uh, are not major considerations at all to me. I, I don't, if Nathan goes in the Navy or whatever he wants to do that way, if, if he's walking with the Lord, it's fine. You know, if he wants to, um, that, that sort of career choice is not the big thing to be. But it, it matters a whole lot to me what kind of woman he marries. And it matters even more to me what kind of men my daughter's marry. Okay, that is something that um, is on on the, on the scale of things is up there at a 10. Now, and, and, and incidentally, it wouldn't be hurting you. Um, many of uh, your children are going to be meeting this person within uh, a few years if they haven't met them already. And it wouldn't hurt at all to be praying for this person now because you don't know who they are. They may not be converted yet. But, you know, The Lord knows who they are. The Lord's got it all under control, but you can begin praying for them now. It's a big deal. Well, since that's the thing of, of greatest import that's coming up, who they marry, what kind of person they marry, the most important thing you can do now is preparing them for the right kind of marriage. All right? Now, I'm saying all this within the context of them being a godly Christian. You know, you can say the most important thing in life is not who you marry. The most important thing in life is following Christ. But I'm, I'm speaking on the level of temporal choices and decisions. Uh, it, and it, so it goes without saying that we're talking about a child who's been taught to love and obey Christ. Having been taught to love and obey Christ as a, as a Christian, uh, what do you do to prepare them for the right kind of marriage? Now, there are two different things that you have to do. And this is all within the context of loving, of loving your teenager. Um, one of the things I've done... Well, the thing that I want to point out about this passage is the Bible does not require wives to love their husbands. It doesn't require wives to love their husbands. Nowhere in the New Testament does it require wives to love their husbands. In Titus, it says the older women are to teach the younger women to be husband lovers, but the word is uh, for lover is, um, uh, comes from the word phileo, which means brotherly affection, warm affection. And I would translate that, uh, teach the older women to have the older women teach the younger women to be into husbands and into kids, to teach them to be domestic. Here, husbands are required to love their wives self-sacrificially, and wives are not commanded to love their husbands at all. They're commanded to respect them, submit to them. Okay? Now, there are two sides to this. One of them I'm just going to mention tonight, and we're going to develop in, a few, in future weeks, because here are the two sides. Uh, your son needs to be, uh, in, in his marriage, your son needs to be respected by his wife, whoever she is. In other words, he needs to marry the kind of woman who will look up to, honor him, uh, look, to up, look up to him, honor him, and respect him. Now, conversely, he needs to be taught how to love her. All right, that's what we're going to talk about in future weeks. Your daughter needs to um, marry a man who will love her. Okay, she needs to be loved. Consequently, you want to prepare for that. Conversely, the other side of that that we'll talk about in future weeks is she needs to learn how to respect her husband. Okay, now your duty as a parent is to teach your sons how to love and your daughters how to respect. All right, that's future weeks. But you also want to get them used to being respected and being loved. All right, you want them addicted to a certain standard of living. <laughs> All right. You see what I'm driving at? You don't want uh, you don't want your daughters to be settling for anything. And why would they settle for anything? Well, because that's it's not that much different than what I got. I'm used to I'm you know I'm used to this sort of um, standard of living. There's not much here, and it doesn't matter if I move over there. Now, what you want to do is you want to set a really high standard. Okay. Now. 
By this, I mean respect your sons. Okay? That's odd. But how do you look up to someone that you used to, you know? Um, now, this is a perennial temptation. You know, uh, Jesus, I think, pointed to it when he said, a prophet is without honor in his own country. Well, why is that? We remember you when you were in short pants. <laughs> you were just, you used to run around here playing stickball. You know, don't come in here and tell us what the Word of God is. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. When, when you used to change the diapers, it's hard for many people to respect. Okay? But your sons need to get used to being respected. Okay? Because you want them to be attracted to a woman who will respect them. Right? And you want them used to that. In the same way, you want your daughters to, be, to live in an environment of love so that they won't even think about a guy who can't supply that. All right? So what you're doing is you're loving your daughters and you're uh, respecting your sons. There's the other element that, that we'll develop uh, later, but I said to, I forget which one of the girls or maybe both of them, I, anyway, I said something like, you know, I don't want you to even think about a guy. I, I, you can bring anybody home you want, but I don't even I don't want you to think about them unless you respect them more than me. Okay, <laughs> if you respect them more than me, then give it a shot. You know, but I don't even I don't even want you to think about it. Uh, otherwise, now, I believe that God has built the world in such a way that that's not a hard thing to have happen at all. Okay, I think this is how God built the world to function. It's not this weird, quirky thing that, that I'm doing. I believe this is what God wants parents to do. He wants fathers to teach their daughters um, how much they're loved and so that they get a man who loves them and a man that they can respect and a father who teaches their sons that they are respected and who teaches his son how to love his wife, although he doesn't know who she is yet. Now, um, so here, when you're pouring on this, um, um, when you're pouring on this affection and love, it has different manifestations. Loving your sons is different than loving your um, uh, daughters, and love is the sort of virtue that carries all all sorts of other virtues with it. So you want your you want your sons to be secure in a certain standard of living, because you've looked up to them. You want your daughters to be emotionally secure because you've protected them and you've given that, that sort of uh, constant environment that they need. One other thing, in developing this thought of looking up to someone you've looked down on for so long, how do you do things like that? Well, one of the things is you express it. There is no such thing as invisible respect. There's no such thing as invisible honor. If you were in the military and walked by an officer without saluting him and the officer called you on it, you couldn't say, well, sir, I respect you in my heart, or uh, I admire your abilities from afar. He would say, well, yes, but you didn't salute me. <laughs> right? There's no such thing as invisible honor. There's no such thing as invisible respect. And you may say you love your kids. That, that just goes back to having this warm feeling in your heart. Well, when God tells you to love or to respect, he's not asking you about the emotional condition of your heart. He wants to know how your behavior is different with regard to them. So if you're respecting your sons, that's something you verbalize. Okay, now, this is something that is important in marriage relationships. It's also important with parents to, to sons and parents to daughters. Um, sons, men, are oriented to abilities and achievements, okay? and women are oriented to relationships. Okay. A woman, to be secure and to feel loved, wants to be confident in the health of the relationship. Right? How are we doing? <laughs> right? And this is true of fathers and mothers to daughters, and it's true of wives to husbands. What's the state of the relationship? And sons want to know, how did I do? Okay? What did I achieve? Did you see how far I hit it? Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just the way it is. And um, here's, a, here's another way of illustrating it. If you've heard this illustration before in marriage talks, uh, forgive it, but I, but I think it illustrates it well. 
if you look at a if you look at a man's novel written by a man for men, doesn't matter if it's the Iliad or uh, Louis L'Amour Western, it follows the same pattern. And if you look at a novel written by a woman for women, it doesn't matter if it's great literature or not, Pride or Prejudice or something out of a supermarket, it follows the same pattern. And and what is that? The novel by a man for men, what's, what's it about? Well, it's about gold or the water rights or the war or the battle or getting the ranch back or getting the cattle back. It's oriented to abilities, um, how fast to draw is he, how tough a fighter is he, you know, all these things, and achievements. Does he get the gold back? Does he get the ring? You know, right? And when the woman enters the picture, she will enter the picture from the side, sort of a plucky rancher's daughter who helps him get the gold back or the water back or whatever it is. She helps him get the job done. In the woman's novel, what is the plot of the book? The relationship is the plot of the book. First she likes him, then she doesn't like him, and then she likes him again, and we're all done. And it's time for another one. <laughs> and, and, the, and the woman is looking at the guy and saying, what, another war, uh, another gunfight, another, you know, it's all the same. Well, and Now, what's happening here is men are oriented to abilities, their abilities and achievements, and women are oriented toward relationship. All right, so what do you do with your daughters? You, you make them secure in the constancy of the relationship. You tell your daughters things like, um, you know, um, I'm really glad the Lord gave you to us. I'm really, you know, you, you tell them how glad you are for the relationship, right? You affirm them in the relationship. I'm glad you're my daughter. I'm, you know, and this goes with the hugs and the affection. You just, you're just affirming the relationship. With daughters, you affirm the relationship, affirm the relationship over and over. And that's not information, it's food. There's a difference between information and food. And I love you and I'm always going to be here is not information, it's food. If, um, if I asked you to uh, go to lunch, you wouldn't say, well, no thanks, I, I know what a hamburger tastes like. Well, you do. But that doesn't keep you from being hungry. And uh, a daughter, or a wife for that matter, can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that her husband loves her, and or father loves her, and can know beyond, and, and can remember exactly what it felt like when he told her last time, five years ago, or whatever, <laughs> whatever it was. Um, but, and she knows it's true, and she knows that she, uh, he loves her. But it's not information we're talking about. It's food we're talking about. So you, what you need to be doing with your wife, you need to be doing with your daughters, giving them that kind of food. And then conversely, what you need to do with your sons is you need to give them respect and praise and honor. Now, it's not information. It's not information. It's food. Same with the boy as it is with the girl. It's just different kinds of food. They operate on uh, a different basis. Okay? Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was Douglas Wilson's talk from our audio collection titled Shepherding Young People. Go find that talk and the rest at canonpress.com.